1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We thought we'd dive back into the world of classic rock for just a minute and talk about a really extraordinary archival release. It's Neil Young's Archives, Volume 2, 1972 to 1976. We have with us Angie Martosio, Andy Green, Rob Sheffield, and David Brown to talk about this box set. Andy, maybe set us up with both the significance of Neil Young's archives as a thing. Judging by this rate, I guess he has about 10 more archives at least to go. And then also just this incredible period. I think this is one of my, personally, one of my favorite periods by any artist ever. So to have a box set focusing on it is pretty dreamlike. But Andy,
0: go. It's a really amazing thing, because back in the 80s, he started talking about archives box sets. And it was every interview he gave for years, but he didn't put it out until 2007. And that was the start of his career through Harvest, which is great stuff. But my favorite period is the mid-70s. And this is the period when he wrote songs at a psychotic rate. He wrote songs so fast that there are many albums that he just shelved completely And he finally did, did this is 72 through 76. It's 10 CDs. There's 63 songs that have never been heard before, which is astounding because he did an album or two per year back then, and he's released a ton since then. So this is the motherlode of sort of the four best years, maybe, of his career as a songwriter. And when you think of
1: it being the best four years of one of the best songwriters of all time, you start to grasp the significance of this project. Rob, maybe you can explain, I presume you agree that this was certainly a peak period. You don't have to agree that it's the peak period for Neil. But what's great about this period for you of Neil Young?
2: Well, this is a period where he, one of his most oft-quoted lines ever, where he got tired of the middle of the road and he headed for the ditch. And so he was doing all these crazy things and sometimes he would release them, sometimes he would not. But There was nobody else operating at that level of eccentricity and certainly nobody who was comparable in terms of, as Andy said, that psychotically prolific output of songs he had. So as you said, Brian, the best period of any rocker's career ever, it's hard to really refute that. And this is the period that he's just making so many weird records so fast, refusing to repeat obvious successes, just always jumping on to the next thing.
0: Yeah, I just think that a quick key point here is that Heart of Gold was one of the biggest hits of 1972, the previous year, and that turned him into a real huge superstar. And he could have gone in a real mainstream direction. And this is all the aftermath of huge mainstream success. And he's largely doing stuff that wasn't meant for the radio, that that wasn't Heart of Gold, that wasn't Old Man.
2: Yeah, it's it's like if James Taylor had responded to the success of Sweet Baby James by deciding he wanted to turn it to Guided by Voices. It's that level of weirdness and an astonishing output. He
3: he almost did with his uh, album One Man Dog, which is this collection (laughs) of weird, minute-long fragment things. But that's another conversation. Uh, (laughs) one, One of the interesting things about archives, talking to one of Neil's archivists a while ago, was that Neil's marching orders to him was, find the best version of every song. And that's why we're seeing, in some cases, on these uh, alternate versions or live versions of songs, and so, and sometimes it's the versions we already know. And it's kind of a daunting task to give to somebody. And even that archivist said, like, how do you even define the best version, <laughs> you know? But uh, th- that was one of Neil's initial approaches. He wanted not just, like, uh, these big box sets of everything he'd ever done, which is a huge task, but the quote unquote definitive version in with whatever group of musicians at whatever period.
4: Yeah, I think the best example of that is that there's three different versions of Love Art Blues, and you may think, like, do we need that? But I think we do. They actually do stand out, and they're quite different together. So I think that's why it's cool to look at this.
1: I mean, Angie suggested that I mention that I am someone who last year, during an obsessive phase, made a playlist that was just different versions of Tonight's the Night, every release version of it and, and listen to it a lot. So based on that, yes, I think we need all these different versions and I'm very happy to see them. Angie, what are we to make of the fact, I just cannot get over the fact that this was only four years of output. What do you make of that? And you were allowed to use the word cocaine in your answer.
4: There's definitely a lot of cocaine, uh, and it's like Rob said, where he was just churning stuff out quicker than his label could even account for, which is why I think it's amazing that, yes, he would shelve stuff, but that's why we have three different archival releases on this that have already been released. It's really a completist attitude, and you can see his exact thought process through each song.
0: Yeah, and I think a big Part of it is the heartbreak he was going through. He was with Carrie Snodgrass, who was an actress that he immortalized in A Man Needs a Maid. He fell in love with her. She moved to the ranch. They had a kid. And then things fell apart. And the heartache of his separation from the divorce of his child was so difficult that he wrote like 75 songs about it.
4: Yeah, I think a lot of this peak is essentially about Carrie, which is the most interesting part.
1: It is a little bit like the scene in A Mighty Wind where he's magically writing and, and is, I never felt so inspired. I think, I think there is a little bit of that in this period. One of the things that's amazing about this box is there's so many things that we've only read about. And you've only read about it really if you've read the great biography, Shaky by Jimmy McDonough, who got to hear all this stuff before pretty much anyone outside of the the Neil Young camp. And it's pretty fascinating. One of the things, there's so many, but one of the things is, so when Neil wrote Danger Bird, uh, which is high on my list of the greatest Neil Young songs of all time, there is another song buried in... Dangerbird. Bird, it's one of the things that makes it so cool is there is, you can hear this other song, the the lyrics and melody of this other song are being sung as a call and response to Danger Bird. I actually am not familiar with any other song that does that thing in quite that way. I think it's it's one of the things that makes you kind of feel like you're on a, on a psychedelic trip or something like that it's like there's this weird echo of this other thing. That song is called LA Girls and Ocean Boys and it's on the album. And was it exciting to hear that song finally for me i, w- I was excited to hear it at the same time it kind of was like pulling back a veil in a way that was almost mildly heartbreaking but it was still exciting
3: well i think that's one of the things that's both maddening and cool about a box set like this to be presented with all this material because and i don't know if any other classic rock performer has quite done this where you take this big body of work and you put it all in chronological order it's not just the quote-unquote best versions but you're getting to hear things pretty much in the order that they were recorded. And Neil would often, you know, Tonight's Night was recorded in 73 and not put out till 75. So things were often jumbled. So as you make your way through all these discs or however you're listening to it, you really are kind of going on this journey along with Neil in sort of in real time in a way that didn't always in the past. And so you get to see like, yeah, these these songs come up and, he records one version, discards it, he changes it. He, it provides a kind of a narrative, even more of a narrative to those years than we thought we had.
1: And let's talk about another totally buried song that we knew about basically only from the book Shaky, which is has an interesting title. It's called Born to Run. And Steve Van Zandt seemed genuinely offended that Neil titled this edition of the archives Born to Run. Which is funny. I don't think he was kidding. I think he he took some offense at it. Now, the actual writing of this song is fascinating. He wrote it in early 1975. And now Bruce's song was on the radio in some places late that previous year. Now, I don't think Neil has ever been directly asked, did he hear the other song, Born to Run, before he wrote the song? I could go either way. It certainly bears no musical resemblance. If we had to bet, what do we think? (laughs) I I find this utterly fascinating.
0: I think it's a huge coincidence. I don't think Neil (laughs) was listening to New Jersey or Philadelphia Rock Radio in like December 74. I don't think he was seeing Bruce and these three band in the Boom Carter era play the song live. I think it's just they both thought the same song title at the same time. And it's really weird, but it's true.
3: There was a random notes item, sorry, back way back then that said Neil was recording an entire album of songs with titles from other songs and incited Born to Run as one of them. And I don't know how true that is or not. I remember reading that. When was that item? I believe it was in random notes in Rolling Stone way back then. So in 75, do we think? Mm, Don't remember the exact year, but around that, it might've been a little later, a little Mm. later
2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
3: What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve
0: Podcast Part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Regardless, it's fascinating
1: to hear you know two rough contemporaries with so many similarities and so many differences tackle not only
2: the same title but a
1: similar theme.
2: It raises I, questions I, about Nils Lofgren <laughs> and whether he was he was the leak. Uh, certainly, like <laughs> when,
1: Nils, he did, he Nils, Nils know, has some explaining to yet. do.
2: Nils has some Unless, explaining to do. That's all I'm saying. <laughs>
1: With access to a time machine, he knew one day that he would be part of the Easter Street Band and time traveling double agent uh, Neil's Lofgren. But Rob, it is fascinating, right, to hear how Neil takes on the theme. And the first thing I noticed was that for Neil, "I was born to run, not we," and that felt like such a telling difference between the Bruce Springsteen approach and the Neil Young approach to life. What else did you make of of the 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 comparison here, or just of the song of Neil's song on its own?
2: I mean, that's a fascinating point. Neil doesn't have a lot of baby. We were born to run sort of sentiments in his songs. I mean, long, long may you run," which we all thought for so many years was a touching love song. It's about a hearse. It's literally about a hearse. not even a car. It's about a hearse. It's the kind of thing where the songs really kind of typify so many of the differences between the two artists. Nobody's strapping their hands around Neil's engines at any point in this (laughs) song.
1: Please don't touch me in any way. (laughs) Please please back five steps away. Uh, I have had my heart broken. What else, Antti, you wrote a, a great review of it. What else as far as, there's like 10 fully unreleased songs as opposed to fascinating alternate versions. What else among the truly unreleased stuff really spoke to you?
4: I think just as you were saying in Shaky, I mean, I've always read about Joni Mitchell joining the Tonight's the Night sessions, and it's something we've just read a few sentences about for years. You know, she heard it and was like, this is awful, I don't want this, and walked out. <laughs> um, and we finally get to hear that for the first time. And obviously, they're not strangers at all. They've known each other for quite a while you can really hear how coked out and boozy they all sound. And it's raised on robbery, which hadn't even been released on Court and Spark yet. So to hear them both exchanging lines and singing together is amazing. And then on top of that, there's also the unreleased song called Sweet Joni," that he wrote for her. And, you know, he prefaces the live version of like, I'm gonna screw this up, no one knows this song. It's about my friend, you might know her. And he starts to play that. And it's so perfectly timed because Mitchell just released her first ever archives. And on there, she does both the Circle game and Sugar Mountain. So it's pretty amazing. They're, wow. they're like taking turns.
1: <laughs> the warning we always got about the Joni thing and the, the deal was that she stopped by in like the middle of the night, I guess, when they were recording Tonight's the Night in this truly bizarre setup at SAR Studios where they were they would deliberately get wasted before they recorded, and just one of the most, which you can hear in every ounce of that album, it's one of the things that make it. There's actually very few ways you can talk about Tonight's Tonight without just spewing cliches, but the the atmosphere just drips from it, the drunkenness just drips from it, but Joni Mitchell shows up and she picked up an electric guitar which you know, was not her instrument of choice, and I don't think it was even a, a particularly clean-toned electric guitar, so if you're gonna be strumming that the way you strum an acoustic, you're gonna get some, it's not gonna be the prettiest thing on earth, and I, I think that must have been, I noticed they only released one of the, <laughs> of, of the songs, that must have been the best sound, because also like, these guys were trying to learn a Joni Mitchell song, which generally would be a little bit above their, uh, you know, generally Joni Mitchell songs are harder to play than Neil Young songs, especially if you're wasted, and I'm sure nils had no problem but everyone else probably were i'm sure nils was like instantly learned the chords and was trying to teach everyone else i can like literally picture it based on nils in various documentaries but this sounded pretty
3: good i actually talked to nils about that a number of years ago and yeah he he remembers them getting all like wasted and playing pool before it and he said that they would start rehearsing the songs and if they be- if the arrangement started to really get a little too polished or you know really click in that's when Neil would say stop like, he would, he would only have them rehearse up to a certain point. If it started feeling a little too cohesive, <laughs> then that was the point at which Neil basically would, would shut things down and say, you know, move on to the next thing. Which uh, sounded like Neil, uh, Nils, who was a real team player, rolled with it. But it was definitely, like, not something he was used to. I mean, he had made records with his band Grin with David Briggs, who was Neil's producer, who was a real taskmaster. And uh, But even, even compared to that, I think doing Tonight's the Night, uh, was a whole new experience, and, and also let me add follow up on Angie and unreleased stuff. As one of my favorite Neil records ever is, is uh, "Time Fades Away," which is his nineteen seventy three live album of all new songs. And one of the delights on this box set is we're getting to hear, uh, and this is real geek stuff, but studio versions of a bunch of those songs, like "Time Fades Away" and "The Bridge." You're hearing the the acoustic demo of "Last Dance," which is here called "Monday Morning." There's the studio version of "Beyond Stands, the Sinner," stuff like that, and and none of the none of these versions the, the are Coen, wildly different.
1: The Coen Brothers have really missed out by not making that the title of one of their movies. By the way, but yeah, please, please go ahead. <laughs> I
3: think any one of these song titles could be a Coen <laughs> Brothers movie if we think about. it. Yeah, so it, I think that's one of the real uh, real treats in this is that we're finally getting to hear some of the, the studio recordings of versions that we only know from uh, from live versions of that record.
4: We even have the original Powderfinger here, so. Yes. So we've obviously first heard that on Russ Never Sleeps, and we even got a gorgeous acoustic version on that archival release called Hitchhiker, which is one of my personal favorites. But for the first time, you really have him sitting down at Broken Arrow Ranch cutting that song, and it's incredible.
1: I still, I think, prefer the Hitchhiker version as far as alternative versions, because that's just incredible. And that's, uh, I would recommend that album in general. It's, it's an incredible acoustic album. Oh, and another one, Ride My Llama is finally out in its long sort of rumored electric version. And it, it's not that different than you might imagine it, <laughs> but, but it is very cool to hear that. David, what else sticks out? Maybe we should talk about your quest to complete the lost CSNY album and how this aids your quest.
3: Yeah. one of, Again, one of the nice surprises on this record, which kind of came out of nowhere, is the inclusion of a bunch of songs that Neil cut with CSN for the never-completed mythical CSNY 70s album that was supposed to be called Human Highway, that they attempted numerous times between 73 and 76. Sessions would sometimes last a little while and sometimes would last a day, as I found looking at some logs. But in particular, in 1976, Neil and Stephen Stills decided to make a record together in Miami. Uh, they made it, and then they decided, you know, this would be kind of nice if we got David and Graham to sing on it. So they, they dragged those guys out to Florida. Crosby Nash sang on a bunch of the songs. Crosby Nash went back to L.A. for a break, and then the story was Neil erased those vocals, and it went back to being what it came out as, which was a Stills Young record. And for, for years, those tracks had just sort of disappeared. And, you know, I would sometimes ask people, uh, you know, well, what happened? And they were we couldn't have just erased them completely, right? And people were gee, we don't know. Well, they didn't. So and some of those, and so on this box, we're hearing things like uh, Ocean Girl and Midnight on the Bay from those sessions with the full CSN harmonies on the songs for the first time. So, it, yeah, it adds another piece of the puzzle or a few pieces of the puzzle to this, uh, you know, never completed sort of, uh, their version of smile, you know, the great lost, uh, album, the beach boys, it was like human highlight was their smile. And we get a few more peeks into that with this box.
1: The difference between Neil Young and Brian Wilson or one of many differences is, <laughs> and there are, there are a bunch of similarities. We could talk about that all day, but one of the many differences is their version of smile collapses. And then Neil just a few years later writes one of the meanest songs of all time, about those guys in Thrasher, and, you know, literally says, like, I got bored of them and left them in the dust, and they're just, like, statues on a bench. Like, just, you know, it is not even that disguised. Uh, so that seems unkind. I don't know. But great song, though.
0: Yeah, and in that <laughs> same vein, on Zuma, the last song is Through My Sales, which is a CSNY record song. And the box set, you hear it just kneel finally. It's the same version on Zuma, but without their harmonies. And it's just so beautiful and so gorgeous. I had no clue that even existed.
3: Yeah, and I have to say that's one of the slightly maddening things about this record. There, there are moments when I sort of wish that he had gone the route of Bob Dylan and the Bootleg series, which I think is the sort of gold standard as far as archival releases. And each one of those, or most of them, for the last 30 years, has just been a, a really concise maybe two disc or so set of all unreleased material from one particular period. And some of those like the alternate sort of alternate version of self portrait or some of those sort of things I've listened to as much as regular Bob Dylan albums. So the way that Neil intermingles rarities with stuff we already own, sometimes I found a little baffling and I kind of wish at times that he had gone the Dylan route and just done a box set, hundred percent of unreleased material and that would have held up really beautifully too because as we've all been discussing there's so much of it so i do have my moments i mean i think just about everything from harvest is on here which means i've now bought harvest <laughs> in every conceivable format lp cassette cd now this thing uh over the years uh i don't think i owned it on a track but you uh, you know there's a part of me that's like ah, i'm buying this again <laughs>
1: I mean that's a good point. On the other hand, is it really shocking that Neil Young would choose a perverse path? I think it's kind of in keeping with it, and it does work as an experience. Although it is, it is a test of if you're not listening carefully, you'd be like, "Oh, that's cool," and then you'd be like, "Oh wait, that's the I, you know I knew that that that's been, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that 20 years ago." Like you can sometimes get fooled, or at least I, I admit to occasionally being like, "What a great alternate version," and then I realize it's it's just the version that I'm listening to with fresh ears. So maybe that's part of the troll here, but. I did want to talk about the album Homegrown, which was sort of pre-released from this archives uh, last year. And it is among, we're talking about things that are fabled and much written about. It is a great Lost Classic Rock album as far as the way people kind of talked about it. It was one that people were, were looking for for a long time. I think it has a few problems for me, which is it's dangerous when something is talked about that much and then you get to hear it because you it can easily be a letdown. And I think one of the specific problems with it is that he had cannibalized it for all these other releases over the years. Uh so some of the best stuff had been heard. Uh like on American Stars and Bars or whatever, like he he kinda of pulled he pulled bits of it and used it. So I was I have to admit, like, mildly underwhelmed when I finally heard it as one thing. But maybe I'm being too harsh. What what do you all think of Homegrown as an album?
3: It's finally cool to hear it in its complete form. I'll say that. And I agree, uh, yeah, some of it has been repeated and so forth. But it is this sort of mythical record. And, and, you know, when it was first released, uh, I believe it was last year, and Angie reviewed it, I think it, it was something so mythical that you kind of forgave the fact that, you know that it was bolderized, as you say. Uh, then again, of course, go back to my previous point. That was already released. As was several other discs in this of unreleased stuff have already been released. <laughs> so again, it's a, it's it's a little confounding at some points. What's being recycled here over and over again? The song "Florida," I just have zero
1: tolerance for. I was just it's, yeah
4: about to say that. Yeah.
1: It's so unlistenable. I literally would rather listen to metal machine music, which I actually kinda like listening to. Florida is horrible. I feel it's indefensible, but I would love to hear someone make a case for it. Rob, can you make can you make a case for Florida?
2: The short answer is no. Not even I can find a a, a clever way to make a, a defense of Florida. That was a song I didn't know at all before hearing this version of it. And so I I was kind of unprepared for uh <laughs> I was unprepared, let me put it that way. But, but no, I, I can't. Describe it, it
1: describe it for us for people who haven't heard this quote unquote Angie, song. Maybe maybe you should describe okay. it. I
4: mean, as as David said, there was so much excitement and mysticism around homegrown. I was reviewing it and I was talking about Florida like it was some like great lost rarity. You know, there's somebody rubbing their fingers against a wine glass to make that nice loud sound, that high pitch sound. And he's kind of slurring about visiting Florida when he was a kid. He's like, you want to go to Florida? Let's go to Florida. And I think it was after I reviewed it that I was like, this is not This is not good. <laughs> but, <laughs> as is We Don't Smoke It No More. But I think those are the two songs I don't love and I, I really do like everything else.
0: I can defend Florida. I think wow, the, okay, I it. think the album as a whole, and you hear these songs finally in a row in context. It's a rock star who is reeling in the aftermath of this breakup. He misses his kid. He's traveling from Kansas to Mexico to Florida. He's always on tour. He's stoned. He's drunk. He's miserable. Florida is this low point where he can barely even speak or make music or get syllables out. It's him just at a low point, just muttering nonsense, and it sort of takes you in to his mindset in sort of a cool way.
4: I would love to hear like his mindset being like, I'm going to include separate ways, this gorgeous <laughs> song and Florida together.
1: Well I think Florida puts the lie to the idea that Homegrown would have been a resumption of the sort of harvest career arc and that by releasing Tonight's the Night, he, you know, rejected He fully went into the ditch because, you know, Homegrown has some commercial stuff on it, but anytime you have Florida on a record, hard to call that commercial. This is the longest that any human beings have ever spent talking about the song Florida by Neil Young, which I actually hesitate. I would call it a track. It's not a song, guys. That's
3: a great great point, Brian, though, about Homegrown. (laughs) As fascinating as it is, it is interesting to listen back to it and think, did someone in 1974 or so think there's a heart of gold on this? You know, I think he did that with Comes to Time, actually, several years later. I think that's his, that's his yes. uh, Harvest follow-up in a lot of ways. But imagine back then being confronted, I guess, with both Homegrown, which has these sort of acoustic songs, and Tonight's the Night. You're probably going to go with Homegrown as, that'll sell more copies. But, you know, in retrospect, it is odd to think that somebody thought this would restore his commercial stature.
2: Yeah, definitely. Like a lot of people, I always thought of it as just sort of the, the metaphorical path not taken, that this was the safe, cozy commercial music that he chose not to release because <laughs> he's an artist and he's got to do what he's got to do. So I was unprepared in general for just what an eccentric album it is. It's a lot further from Harvest than the uh, years of advanced reputation that led me to, to suspect.
4: And another thing he sneaks in here in the archives too that I love is, you know, he just released Homegrown and Separate Ways opens it. And on Archives 2, he has a whole jam with Stephen Stills during their ill-fated 1976 recordings and that tour. And it's the longest jam. You hear them interlocking back and forth, and it's just absolutely incredible. But of course, if you don't listen to that whole thing, you probably won't notice it.
1: It's really good, and it has an amazing organ solo. Who's Jerry Aiello, who played organ on that?
3: He was uh, Stills' keyboard player. That basically was Neil backed by Stills and Stills' band of the time. And uh, and yeah, that is that is a great sort of searing version. I mean, it's the the acoustic versions of that song we've heard are are more kind of resigned, but that one is really intense and you feel you, you hear sort of the the anger coming out too in that. It's a it has a very different mood to it. And it's really a shame that that he didn't include that on the Still's Young band record, which is a which was a disappointing record didn't quite live up to what it could have been. But, you know, as we're reminded over and over again, uh, he didn't always give those guys his best songs. You know, he would often <laughs> pull things at the last minute. Helpless was not meant for deja vu to begin with. <laughs> and they only ended up there because he tried cutting with Crazy Horse earlier that day, wasn't happy, and then dragged it along to the CSN sessions. And But he, he has this pattern of pulling some of the best songs from, from uh, CSNY projects for his own and. Uh,
0: but at least we're finally getting to hear Separate Ways. Yeah. And so rather than give Separate Ways to Stephen Stills, he put it in a vault for 50 years. <laughs> That'll show you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and well, and, and yeah. as, as Angie just reported, there's a Deja Vu box set coming out in May that was uh, supposed to have a bu- that has a whole slew of unreleased stuff from those sessions. And was supposed to have a bunch of Neil songs and he, he pulled some of those as well. There's still a few, but not as many as we hoped.
4: Yeah, and when I pressed Graham on it, who mainly, you know, spearheads these out of the four of them, he was uh, giving me a very nice and respectful response saying, uh, we are all individual artists, and if that's what Neil wants, I understand his decision. And I couldn't get him to say more than that. <laughs>
1: he 's been practicing saying that for uh, for decades uh,
4: <laughs> but
1: let 's talk about this beautiful song, "String man," which he has has seen some release before it 's just a really top tier Neil young song that I was not super familiar
2: with that 's one of my absolute favorites. I first had it on a bootleg called Chrome Dreams," which I think was kind of a big deal bootleg back in the days when you know we bought bootlegs of this stuff. But String Man, just such a, like, incredibly beautiful ballad uh, about somebody basically left behind by the 70s and somebody who feels kind of, like, old and out of date. And, of course, Neil was so young when he wrote this song. It's really kind of amazing. Just a beautiful song. If I'm not mistaken, was the MTV Unplugged version, was that the first version that was officially released? I think it's probably where a lot of people heard it for the first time.
0: Yeah, he played it live on the 76 tour where he'd sit down at the piano and play a song that nobody in the theater knew. And they were all like, holy shit, what is this? And then he didn't do it again until Unplugged in 1992.
1: It's a real Pearls Before Swine thing to kind of put Stringman on, on something that was meant to introduce him to you know a, the whole idea of Unplugged, where you're supposed to play your greatest hits, uh, acoustic, and inter- you know, that to put this gorgeous unreleased ballad and just kind of throw it in without explanation is just amazing. Now, one thing that's worth talking about is the Zuma sessions. No one took my bait, but we'll go back to Ride My Llama, which is an amazing and ridiculous Neil Young song about basically getting super high with an alien, perhaps the ultimate Neil Young scenario. And it was, of course, released acoustically on Russ Never Sleeps, but we've always known there was a Crazy Horse version in the studio from the Zuma sessions, and here it is. And it's a lot of fun. If I had to choose which was better, maybe the acoustic version is better, but I don't really understand why he didn't release it. What what do we think?
0: I think on Zuma, he had so many new songs, and I was so excited to have Crazy Horse back and have Poncho to be a new part of this group. And he was sitting on this wealth of material, and there was just no room for it. I mean, like Zuma is such a strong collection of songs, and it was made so quickly, and they were so stoned the entire time. They were just it was just shat out basically. Yeah,
3: we always have to remember that back then you only had thirty or forty minutes of music you could put out at a time for the most part, on an LP. I know it sounds bizarre to say that now, but that was the reality back then. And maybe that factored into it in some way. You know, there's only so much music you can put on a record back then. So then, just as with Ride My Llama, Pocahontas, another totally bonkers
1: Neil Young song. I, you know, I, it has a playfulness that isn't always evident in, say, talking to Neil Young. But just the the audacity of, of putting Marlon Brando in there and just the pure stoned daffiness of the scenario was just so incredible to me. And that that's another song from Russ Never Sleeps where it's done acoustically. And here again, we have the electric version. So I, I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that
3: one. Well, again, like, uh disc eight is is this record called doom which was i guess was d-u-m-e of course which was supposed to be i guess the record that came out of zuma and it's basically the, the more complete versions of all these songs from that period with crazy horse uh, another kind of mythical record that i gather he just shelved and just cherry picked for zuma and so now we're hearing the complete thing as intended with these electric versions of ride my llama and pocahontas and uh, I'm not sure those, those electric versions are better, because they're so beautiful on Must Never Sleeps. But it kind of fills in another you know, hole in the story of, like, uh, uh, as Andy was saying, of this kind of creative resurgence he was feeling post On the Beach, Night's Night, back with Crazy Horse. And, and you, you feel him kind of re-energized, and the fact that he was just cranking out all these songs and making whole records that he would never release. The whole idea of
1: Duma is really confusing because I think he mentions it in Waging Heavy Peace, one of his books, but it's unclear, I think, whether it was, some of these albums were finished, sequenced albums, like Homegrown, and some are sort of, you know, now being reconfigured into albums. What do we think? Angie, you were going to say something.
4: Oh, I was just going to say, I think according to Shaky, the Duma sessions are when Bob Dylan kind of showed up, And he was like not wanting to come inside and sat in his car. And you can hear that kind of mythology when you go through this. That's all I picture is like Dylan kind of walking up to the house.
2: (laughs) Maybe Dylan heard that version of "Raised on Robbery" and said, "That's not happening to me." <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not that bad, is the thing, Rob. What I, I think, I it's, love it. It's, I love it. Yeah, no, no, it's cool. But I, I do imagine that there's a couple totally unlistenable Joni moments that we didn't get to hear because of I just the, want to hear some. I mean, I mean the cult one of the, splash. I
2: mean, one of the major themes through this box set is is the uh, the Joni Neil friendship and just what a incredibly strange friendship it is. So unique for both of them in both their biographies and that. You know, Neil Young, of all people, literally of all people on earth, is someone who manages to have a completely tranquil, uncomplicated, unneurotic friendship with Joni Mitchell for all those years. And just really kind of amazing. And to hear this, like Angie was saying, that this comes out at the same time as Joni's archives. It's just really kind of amazing that that symbiotic relationship. Such a strange friendship between these two rock stars. It's hard to think of anything even comparable.
4: And as you just said, Rob, like those the Joni Mitchell archives that just came out was Neil encouraging her to put that out. And it was Neil and Elliot Roberts, he had just started working for Joni again, you know, her previous manager who has passed away. But it was both of them convincing her, like, you need to do this. And it's almost like they planned it out together to have the same exact fall season putting these out.
3: I think we need to have an in-depth oral history of that whole Malibu rock scene that was pretty short-lived in that, I guess, seventy two seventy four era, where you've got Neil and Crazy Horse and Joni and Dylan and the band. All those folks just like hanging out together, recording together, you know, partying together. I remember interviewing Robbie Robertson about that era recently, and he remembers like one day looking outside the studio, and there's like Warren Beatty playing touch football in the front yard. I mean, it's just quite a scene back it, then. Carol really King, King living next door
2: to Cheech and Chomp. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, and if you look at the credits here on the box set, you see Lee Van Helm, you see Rick Danko, you see Robbie Robertson, that he's bringing these guys in to just play for a day on his various sessions.
3: Yeah, there's this cool version, uh, there's on Homegrown, I believe, of, of White Line with Robbie playing guitar on it, and that's a song that we wouldn't hear again until uh, Ragged Glory. And then he cut it with CSNY for their um, Looking Forward album 20 years after that, and uh, he forgot he'd recorded it, he released it on Ragged Glory. And you know, someone in the studio had to say, Oh, that's a great new version of that song and he was like, What do you mean? It's <laughs> like, You already put that out. So there's a third version of White Line somewhere.
1: We do know that Dylan came in and, and jammed with Neil and the Horse during the Zuma sessions. Unfortunately, that is not on here. Dylan famously came out of the sessions and it was like, your band can't play. And Neil said, but they could play with you. Think about it. But it, it didn't work out. That, that was when Bob was somehow hitchhiking around Malibu or sleeping in his car. It's all very strange. Uh, but sadly, even in this box set, we don't get to hear Bob Dylan playing piano with Crazy Horse. Maybe it wasn't recorded. I don't know. But it is interesting that given the just encyclopedia of terrible things that Joni Mitchell has said about Bob Dylan. She spared that entire litany of insults for Neil, which is really interesting. Um, it, it's, so,
2: it's so amazing. And like from Toronto to Malibu and beyond, you know, and like at the last waltz, they shared a trailer because uh, he was the only person there that she could stand. Such a beautiful and touching friendship. And I guess listening to this archives, partly because of, you know, what she was doing at a similar time and during the same time frame, But just such a touching friendship that's so apart from anything else in their biographies. And Neil Young, of all people, is the person who figured out the secret of getting along with Joni Mitchell, which is a secret that has been well hidden for uh, much of this era. And it's just kind of amazing that, you know, and Sweet Joni, which was totally new to me, and I was completely unprepared for that song. And it's even got the very, like, Joni-ish sort of offhandedness where he's like, oh, this is this new song I wrote. And he presents it like it's going to be something very sloppy and spontaneous. And it's this incredibly brilliantly crafted, extremely uh, well-structured song. With, It's really kind of like astounding, like the sort of Joni Neal similarities that jump out all over this box set. So in the four minutes or so we have left, let's look at the sort of parameters
1: of this box set. Andy, you were saying it it ends in a very weird place. It ends a little too early.
0: Yeah, I think starting at the Time Fades Away tour, that makes perfect sense. That's a launch of the new era. But to end this on the first leg of the 76 Crazy Wars tour with the shows there, it to me, it strikes me as very random. I think Rust Never Sleeps was the clear end of this period. And I think if I was curating this, I would have kept off things that were like live at the Roxy that he'd already released. And gotten in Stills Young Band live stuff, gotten in Comes of Time stuff, gotten in maybe like a Ducks concert. And it ended on Rust Never Sleeps, because that's the end of this period. That's the culmination of this time. And the whole new era started in 1980. So this next box set, which he's working on now, it's going to be weird if he started the Stills Young Band tour and end in like trans or something. That doesn't feel to me like a time period. That's two time period.
1: And then I was saying the fact that he's only on volume two and yet has only hit 1976 concerns me a little bit because there are quite a number of years between uh, then and now to get through and uh, no one's getting any younger. So how are we to look at that? You all were saying that maybe part of it is maybe the whole 80s gets one edition or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think what's going to happen is he's just doing two more of these, I think is the plan. So I think this next one will be late 76 through, like, Freedom or something. And then he'll have to do Volume 4 will be really sped up. will maybe be like Harvest Moon to the present. So that sounds nuts. Uh, So maybe he needs to do five of these. I don't know.
4: I just really hope that when it becomes a time era, there's going to be, like, a secret session of Ian and Sylvia on Four Strong with Neil. That's my only hope.
1: <laughs> Speaking for the youth as always, Angie. Uh, but <laughs> Angie, actually, I do have one question for you as the youngest person on this show. Is there something that Neil can do to reach out to beyond his fan base again and kind of rekindle interest in, in Neil Young? Because I'm, I'm a little concerned about that. I'm not sure he's done, Andy and I talk about this constantly over the years, but I'm not sure Neil's done the greatest job in sort of the sort of making himself super relevant to young audiences kind of thing. He just doesn't give a shit, which I, which I totally admire, but it concerns me a little bit. So is there anything they can do as far as outreach?
4: I think in terms a, a of social account? media, yeah, no TikToks <laughs> of Neil Young, like just smoking in his barn. But I feel like the last couple years, he's been a lot better with social media. The Neil Young archives, you know, he and his wife, Daryl Hannah, you've heard of her. They post things a lot now. I really don't know how else he can be relevant. It's, it's tough. He's not exactly doing interviews either. So maybe if he just does one interview to get the word out to all the kids, that would be good.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, we had that godfather of grunge moment in the 90s where, you know, he sort of did intersect with the culture Everything from his wardrobe to the, the, the music sort of suddenly felt relevant. But yeah, it's a little tougher now, especially with rock as kind of a niche genre. As it's becoming.
4: I mean, I know Phoebe Bridgers is a huge fan of On the Beach, so they should just do that together.
1: Poor Phoebe Bridgers is left to single-handedly uphold the entire rock canon. The only bridge between between all of rock history and current music is is Phoebe Bridgers. Phoebe Bridgers kind of likes Van Halen. Phoebe Bridgers likes Metallica. It's just all on her. It's too much. She likes to smash guitars. It's it's too much weight on poor Phoebe. We got to we got to take some weight off of her on this thing but yeah we'll see you know it is what it is but this is a great box set everyone should check it out thanks to Andy martosio and andy green and rob sheffield and david brown for a really fun conversation that is today's episode of rolling stone music now we'll be back next week here on sirius xm's volume channel 106 in the meantime we are a podcast of course download us as a podcast subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts leaving nice reviews on itunes is always deeply appreciated we read them all but as always thanks for listening keep on staying safe and we will see you next week